I say there are, there are two things that a great leader has that, that, that make people follow them or, 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 or hold them in high regard, and that's honesty and empathy. And, and Lee tended to show that. Um, you know, whenever he would um, take time to ride around with his troops and so on, you know, again, one of those things that you read about that they said that, you know, seeing him ride through the, the you know, the various areas with the troops, that it was like they saw the an angel of the Lord passing through. I mean, they just, they just, they just held him in such awe. Welcome to the Impact Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Cartavera, a leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. Today is episode 46, and the title is Leadership Lessons from the Battle of Gettysburg. That's right, the Gettysburg Battle from the Civil War. Our very special guest is Jack Carroll. He was a CEO for over 25 years, and today, Jack is the founder and president of Battle Ready Leadership that works with high-level executives, managers, and in fact, whole corporate teams on leadership, strategic thinking, and communication, but particularly in the context of the battle at Gettysburg. Jack is gonna share today that history is a lot more than memorized dates and facts. It's about stories of those battles. Most importantly, it's a rich source of leadership lessons that you can use to lead today, right now in the 21st century. Get ready to hear some amazing stories to better and differently understand not only the history, but the context of Gettysburg, and to hear very specific stories and lessons about leaders during Gettysburg that not only had great successes, but great failures. Prepare yourself for a fascinating journey through the Battle of Gettysburg through the lens of leadership. Podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. Craig and I are back here today for the Impact Leadership Podcast, and if you know me at all, this will be a test. You will know just how thrilled I am about our guest and topic today, because we have Jack Carroll with us, and that may not mean anything to you, but Jack Carroll, his company is called Battlefield Leadership, and he is all about leadership, which we love, but here's the cool part. Jack comes at leadership from a perspective certainly of battlefield, but with a real emphasis on, wait for it, civil war leadership lessons, with a heavy emphasis on Gettysburg. And again, those of you who know me, you know I got goosebumps right now, because I'm so thrilled to listen to this, hear what's going to come from this. So I'm going to just jump in and say, welcome, Jack. Yeah, welcome. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate the invite. I'm excited to, to talk to you today. And uh... Uh, let's have at it. I'm, I'm excited to tell you more about uh, the business and, and talk about leadership. Awesome. Right on. So, Jack, we always start off with a simple question, which is give us a little bit of the story that brings you here today and the topics we're going to talk about. Well, I, I, I think uh, what brings me here today, I think, is give you a very brief background. Um, you know, I spent a number of years as a, as a CEO of a regional advertising agency, and and during that time, I, I really was challenged uh, constantly by um, leadership uh, opportunities and challenges and, and different things that went on within the firm. And there were a lot of, I think, uh, things that I learned as I grew and as I added people to the staff and so on about team building and how to begin to lead leaders and so on. And, and uh, one day, um, I decided that I needed some help uh, in terms of gaining some inspiration for my team. And I I decided to take the whole team to Gettysburg uh, for a bit of a oh. summit of sorts. And nice. um, it turned out being kind of a life-changing, uh, you know, situation for a number of people on the team, but, but especially for me, because when I, when I went to Gettysburg, and I think anyone who's been there, and, and, and certainly, Jeff, you know, you've been there before as well. And when you go to Gettysburg, 
you get taken in by just the enormity of the situation and what happened there and so on. And, and, and I began to learn more about the stories and so on. But one of the things that really struck me is, apart from the courage of the soldiers who fought there, I wondered, you know, what, what made them do this? What, what made them stay and fight? I mean, enormous number of casualties and so on in Gettysburg. And so looking down to... Let me, let me back you up for just a moment. So I, I am not a big student of, of Gettysburg. So maybe if you can give us some little context in there, because I think that would help me and some of the listeners as well. Uh, sure, absolutely, Craig. The, well, Gettysburg uh, happened in uh, July of 1863. It was a pivotal time during the American Civil War. Um, prior to the battle, the war had been going on for, for two bloody summers. And uh, one of the things that is really interesting about the Battle of Gettysburg, I mean, it's known kind of as the turning point in the war, and there are a number of reasons for that. Um, I'll talk specifically about leadership and why Gettysburg is so significant at that point in time. Prior to the Battle of Gettysburg, um, Robert E. Lee, who was the commander of the, the Confederate Army, um, he and his chief lieutenant, Stonewall Jackson, conducted what, what many people consider to be one of the greatest military campaigns in history. They, they would crush huge Union armies in battle after battle, and they had all the momentum in the world coming into to July of 1863. Um, so much so that Lee felt it was time to kind of move out of Virginia and, and invade Northern Territory. He had that much confidence. So you've got this going on on the one side. The other fascinating part about the leadership is that the Union Army um, actually named a new commanding general only three days before the battle. Oh, wow. So you've got someone who's brand new in that role going up against this iconic figure that is almost legendary um, in this battle. And, and, uh, and we'll talk about it in more detail, um, I hope, as we get on in here. But, but that's really where the leadership story begins at Gettysburg. Um, so Gettysburg happened uh, in July of 1863. It was, two, it was three days, July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. Um, there were more than 50,000 casualties during the battle. Certainly wow. it was the, the largest battle in the American Civil War, actually the largest battle in the history of the Western Hemisphere. Um, wow. And um, so one of the things a lot of people say that the battle kind of happened by, by happenstance. It was, it was sort of this uh, lucky situation where the Confederates kind of by accident ran into the Union cavalry and it happened to be in Gettysburg. But I even have, um, I talk a lot in my book and some other things about how I believe that uh, that, that uh, destiny was kind of set up uh, ahead of time by the leaders um, of the armies uh, that kind of put the battle in Gettysburg. So Lee was defeated at Gettysburg, kind of changed the course of the war. Um, you know, the other thing that people need to understand is politically, this was a time when you know, there was a lot of unrest uh, in the North. There were riots in the streets. And, and, and I think Lee saw this not only as a, a military victory um, to win the battle, but he thought coming to, to Pennsylvania, he could actually win the war. Um, and so that's, that's the significance of the Battle of Gettysburg. So, I mean, I think you can't overstate um, the importance in our country's history um, hmm. of what happened during those three days in 1863 at Gettysburg. Wow. Well, thanks for the clarity. I, and I don't, you know, it's so much there, Jack, it'll be interesting to see how much we can get into. You know, I always tell people that Gettysburg is such a great leadership resource because there's so many moving parts. And I don't even know if you plan on talking about it, but you referenced a Stonewall. Mm -hmm. You know, he was, you know, Lee had two right hands, right? He had, he had, right, he had Jackson and he had... The name just escaped me. Well, Longstreet was... Uh, Longstreet. But so he's going into battle in Gettysburg, and he didn't have Jackson. Right. But Jackson was killed a month earlier at Chancellorsville. Hmm. So he... And I've read a lot about the people saying, how would Gettysburg have been different, and how did he communicate knowing how Jackson would interpret those messages, but he had new generals that didn't listen and hear the same way. Well, that's exactly right. And I talk a lot in my program about adaptive leadership. Mm. And, um, and that's where, you know, as great of a general as Robert E. Lee was at, at Gettysburg, I, I call Gettysburg his bad day. You know, his bad day. <laughs> that's a pretty bad day. Uh, well, bad three days. Bad three days <laughs> bad so day. many things that, that went on at Gettysburg just were so different. Um, for Lee and the way that he handled people and the way that he worked with his commanders and so on. And, and you're right. Um, 
he, the commanders who took Stonewall Jackson's place at Gettysburg actually served underneath Jackson. Um, and they were used to, Jackson was a type of commander. He was very much a, sort of an authoritarian kind of leader. I mean, he would tell guys exactly what to do. He would say, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go here. I want you to, you know, move to the left and this and that sort of thing. And that's how these commanders were used to taking orders. Lee, on the other hand, was used to giving Jackson orders because he knew Jackson was capable of just taking it and run with it. So he could say things like, you know, look, they're they're stacking up on our left flank. We really ought to do something about that. And that's all <laughs> he had to say. You know, he knew that Jackson would would take would 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 you know take the reins and run with it. Wow. So Lee really didn't adjust his leadership style. And that's where, you know, you you mentioned a couple of things uh, in terms of some orders that were given that may have impacted the 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 outcome of the battle and, and they're debated still today. Wow. So Jack, one of the things I, I think I took you off track from your story because you, you had just taken your, your leadership team out there to Gettysburg and we didn't hear the rest of the story. Sorry. <laughs> well, that's fine. I think I was just really trying to say what really led to this whole concept of battle ready leadership and the business and, and, the, and, and the different seminars and things that I do. Um, it started there um, when I took my own team to Gettysburg and we really learned a lot about leadership and that sort of thing. And I, I just became obsessed with it. And I couldn't read enough about some of the leaders and the different things that they did and the strategy and so on. And um, so I started actually taking other businesses up there. I had clients, I had still, you know, was running an ad agency and I had clients that really kind of pulled me in to things other than just helping them with their marketing. I mean, we got involved in a lot of different things with their, their strategy and everything else. So I started taking them up there and, and, even taking friends and family, any excuse I could get to get to Gettysburg and start <laughs> telling people these, these stories of leadership. Huh. And eventually I turned it into a business. And, and so that's what I'm, I'm doing now and, and wrote a book on the subject and that sort of thing. Um, so that's how it all began um, pretty much. Uh, and, and I guess the one thing that I'll say is the most fascinating about Gettysburg is it gives you a great opportunity to tell successful stories of leadership on one side of the equation and other stories of how leadership was not really done the right way. And what's really fascinating about that is it's a flip-flop of what had happened up until that time in the war. It seemed like the, the Confederate army could make no mistakes and they were doing all the right things. And the leadership was, was they were making great decisions up to this point. And the union army was, was just one disaster after another. And they got to Gettysburg and everything changed. And there are reasons for that. Um, but I think that's what's fascinating is you get a chance to really look at things and say, hey, how did, how did these guys make a comeback? How did they start making the right decisions? And it starts at the top and goes down through different leaders that really stepped up during the battle, which really, I believe, made a difference. Maybe one of the biggest differences was that some of the younger commanders that stepped up during the battle um, as well. So it just it offers so many amazing stories that you can tell about this. And and and. And I've been going to Gettysburg for a number of years, and I still, you know, I'm fascinated by how much I can learn each time I go. A new story, a new development, something else that happened during the battle. And I think that um, there's so many lessons that can be learned tied into how we do things in business, um, especially today. Jack, you started off with a really fantastic topic about, you talked about adaptive leadership. Mm. And, and I want to dig in a little bit on that because. From my perspective, I know you're referring to there's one topic of leadership there, one particular com, uh, communication, which is just a few words that I, is still debated today, uh, which is uh, if practicable. Right. <laughs> Those two words, if practicable, are still debated today. Um, and I believe that was the order from Lee to the general who would have, who was in place of Jackson. Exactly. That's why it's such a great example. So could you tell just a snippet of that? Because I really want our listeners to get an insight to that importance of communication and that adaptive leadership. Sure. Uh, I'll be happy to. That's really one of the more interesting parts of the battle. I think, you know, I, this really is kind of centered around one thing, and that is the difference between discretionary and non-discretionary orders that you give mm -hmm. during the course of the day, right? So, so you've got a discretionary orders when you tell someone basically, you know, you give them the option to, to, to do things and so on. Um, it's more of, a, of an ask versus a tell, you know, you're basically asking someone to do something and then you leave it to them to, to do it. 
non-discretionary is very different. That's the way Stonewall Jackson ruled. He would say, look, this is what I want you to do and you got to do it now. Well, what happened at Gettysburg is at the end of the first day when the Union Army had retreated back to Cemetery Hill, you know, the, the, the first day was a defeat of the Union Army. And, and so they had retreated and, and, and dug in on Cemetery Hill. Um, approximately 10, 15,000 troops, a number of cannons were, were dug in on Cemetery Hill or were in the process of digging in. Lee's army had chased the, the uh, Union troops all the way through town and had started to be, kind of surround them a little bit to some degree. And uh, Lee kind of saw his opportunity that maybe we can finish them off, you know, at, at this point in time. And, and so he, <clears throat> he sent a message to General Ewell, um, his, his commander, um, who was closest to Cemetery Hill. And he said, tell General Ewell to take that hill if practicable. Now, there's a second part to that order that, uh, that seems to be lost in history, especially to people who are, you know, critics of, of General Ewell. And the second part of that was, but do not bring on a general engagement meaning don't get yourself into trouble that you can't pull yourself out of until the rest of the army is there to support you, okay? So, so Lee gave this order. He said, take that hill if practicable, all right? Well, General Ewell sort of assessed the situation. Ewell saw that, you know, he knew that his men had been fighting for hours during a hot afternoon. They were badly beaten up, and, and, and you know, he, he had lost much of his strength. Um, he saw that the Union Army was well entrenched. Um, he also had gotten a report that there was another Union Corps, the 12th Corps, was approaching from his flank, from his left flank, and he was afraid that he would be surrounded. So Ewell said, eh, you know, I think we'll, we'll pass and we'll, and we'll wait on this until tomorrow. Um, so, you know, what, what you're referring to, Jeff, is, I mean, the, the criticism of Ewell, I mean, was immediate and, and, and long-lasting in the South um, about, you know, pretty much blaming him for, for losing the Battle of Gettysburg because everyone seemed to think that, hell, if, if Stonewall Jackson were here, we would have taken that hill and we would have won the battle. So um, that's where I think discretionary and non-discretionary or, discretionary orders become so important um, for a leader to understand, you know, that adaptive leadership style, to understand who might be good at accepting discretionary orders and who is good at understanding a non-discretionary. So help me understand, with the, the order to Yule, that was an order from whom? I'm sorry, it was from Robert E. Lee. Okay. And he, he sent a message to, to Yule. Okay. So they're on the south. They're, they basically protected their, their area in there, even though they were advancing. That's on day one? Well, yeah, I think the, the, the choice was to not, you know, the Union Army had now taken command of this high ground. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, that's really what the battle was all about, was defending the high ground for the Union Army. And okay. uh, so when they defended this high ground, the Confederates were in a position to, to attack this hill. Okay. Um, but they chose not to. They chose to kind of pull back and, and wait until the rest of the army was consolidated and they had a, a better plan for the next day. Okay. And, and my, you know, the way and thing I love about history is what can I bring into the present? Because otherwise it's just a story. <laughs> and so I hear you talking about adaptive leadership. I hear you talking about understanding the difference between discretionary and non-discretionary orders, but more importantly, who to give to whom. <clears throat> and I think for me, a piece that shows up in that is the level of trust, because Lee had a very high level of trust in Jackson. And, and they had an unspoken language, as you said, but I think that lack of adaptive leadership was Lee not saying, wait a minute, that's not Jackson. What do I have to maybe do differently? Because I think, you know, my reading over history is that Lee interpreted that order as take it unless you, you're going to fail. <laughs> That's how I read it. Right. Yet you will apparently more took it as take it only if I'm certain that I'll take it. Hmm. Yeah, those are and it did. Have, it had a significant impact. So I love the, the reality about communication. And I hadn't really heard that phrase, adaptive leadership, I think, is vital. Um, I want to talk, um, there's so much we can cover in here, I want to shift gears to another topic, which is you talked about the change in leadership that had happened hmm. um, for both sides. So talk about how, you know, this, the two sides did reacted differently to the change in leadership and what that impact was. Sure. Well, you know, I, I think 
Probably the most fascinating part of all of that is, is the story of, of the change in leadership of the Union Army. Um, if you ask people, you know, who was the commanding general of the Confederate Army at Gettysburg, almost will always say Robert E. Lee. But if you ask the question, who was the Union general who commanded at Gettysburg, um, a lot of times people say it was uh, Ulysses Grant or others. And, and, and the, but the commanding general for the Union Army was George Meade. And uh, George Meade, I'll call him one of the most underrated generals in American history. Um, <laughs> you you got to understand, this, this is the first general to defeat Robert E. Lee on a Civil War battlefield. And, in, and, and nobody knows about this guy. And it's, and it's, it's almost kind of sad. But <clears throat> so I, I, I take some time to talk about George Meade and the circumstances under which he really became the commander of the Union Army. Um, <clears throat> The Union Army was badly defeated in Chancellorsville just a few weeks before Gettysburg. And the commanding general was Joseph Hooker. And he and, and, and Abraham Lincoln was really furious with the performance of, of Joe Hooker. And, and so they were at odds. And Hooker basically got to the point where he had given Lincoln an ultimatum that he was, you know, he had to have things a certain way or he would resign. And Lincoln was very quick to accept his, his resignation. <laughs> so Lincoln, <clears throat> this is actually a story. And, and Jeff, you like this because you talk about adaptive leadership. This is a situation where Lincoln actually kind of changed his style in terms of discretionary and non-discretionary orders. Lincoln sent a messenger um, to George Meade. Meade at that time was in Maryland, uh, outside of, of Frederick. And about two o'clock in the morning, um, a young captain came into Meade's tent and he said, and, and, and woke Meade up. And he said, General, I'm afraid I'm here to give you some trouble. And Meade wakes up and he doesn't know what's going on. He has no idea what's happening, except he makes an assumption that he's being arrested for some infraction, perhaps on the battlefield or something else. So, so he jumps up and he says, look, if, I'm, if you're here to arrest me, I want you to know I have a clear conscience. And to that, the young captain said, no, General, I've got far worse news than that. You, you've just been named commander of the Union Army. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> so, 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 and, and, when I get to, to Lincoln's order, basically the order was this, that Meade had to accept this command or he would need to resign from the army. Okay, so that, there's nothing really discretionary about that. <laughs> it pretty much is, you know, you, you have to do this. Um, and and you, can, you can interrupt and cut me off in any second, but, but Meade is one of my favorite topics to talk about. And, and, and I, it was interesting because one of the first things that Meade did was he sat down and he wrote a letter to his wife. And two things in that letter, I think, were very telling about George Meade. And, and one was um, he sort of made light of the situation and this whole process of how he's made the commander of the Union Army. He said um, to his wife, he said, I was convicted and sentenced without a trial. OK, <laughs> <laughs> and that's how he kind of phrased it. You know, so it speaks a little bit about Meade and his personality and so on. But the other thing that Meade did was he, he, he told her, he said, look, Lee is in Pennsylvania and I'm going right at him, okay? And this is something that maybe contradicts what some of the people say about George Meade and, and his leadership style for being maybe a little too passive. Um, Meade knew what he had to do. And Meade's background, um, you know, he was an engineer by trade, very well-schooled at West Point and so on, very methodical in the way that he did things. And, and Meade was absolutely masterful in the way that he coordinated this army in a very short period of time. I mean, as I said, imagine it's, it's only three days before the battle actually takes place. Now, nobody knew it was going to be in three days exactly, right. but, but he knew that something huge was about to happen. So Lincoln, or I'm sorry, but Meade did a great job of sort of empowering his commanders. When he was new to command, he didn't know a lot of the Union commanders, but he knew some of them. And the ones that he knew, he really trusted, you know, that, that, word trust comes into play. Mm -hmm. And these commanders, he empowered and put them in key positions and, and organized the army as such so that these, in this case, three key commanders were going to be in a position to make critical decisions going forward. Um, one was John Buford, who was the cavalry commander. John Reynolds um, was, a, was a, probably the most highly regarded senior um, officer in the Union Army. And uh, Winfield Scott Hancock. Um, so Meade was fantastic at building a team and empowering that team, getting them together. And then just there are so many lessons in terms of 
great communication beyond that. You know, we think communication is important today. It was really critically important back then, and they didn't have the kind of technology, obviously, that we have today. I mean, they didn't, you know, there's, there's no radio to, to, to tell someone what's going on. So, you know, you can imagine scribbling messages on this piece of paper and handing it to a guy on a horse and, 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 and getting things out to people. So It's got to yeah. be really, really crisp and clear. Because exactly. you, you can't say, oh, you know, just text back and say, okay, so, so what did you mean by this? <laughs> well, that's exactly wow, right. good point. And, and one of the things, Craig, that I do in my, my course is I, I challenge everyone, you know, to think of the strategy of their business yeah. and, and, and communicate the strategy of that business as if you're telling someone in 20 words or less. Mm. Okay, so your, your business strategy. Um, and that's really what Meade had to do. I mean, he had to come up with his battle plan. Um, I call it commander's intent. Yeah. And uh, he was very clear about that to all of his commanders in terms of what they were supposed to do, what the overall goal was. Mm-hmm. The strategy was to really, you know, finally um, engage him and hold him in place until the rest of the army got there. So and it's interesting up, you uh, say that because I've, I've heard the term commander's intent. Was that something that, that Meade init- uh, started? Um, I, I don't believe he started that, but I, it's a military term for sure. And, and I think that's, you know, when we talk in business about strategy and that sort of thing, they talk about commander's intent. You know, yeah. what, what, what is it the commander intends to do? And you'll see that a lot in various uh, war movies uh, and so on. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but that's, so that's how, how Meade put his strategy together. And uh, the whole process between that time he took command and getting to Gettysburg and even during the battle itself, the way that he continued to be this, this real empowering um, general. Well, Jack, I want to put one little piece of context on this, because I think what I'm saying in this question is a reason for people to study Meade Mm -hmm. is you, I'm sure you know the numbers, but at that point, how many other generals had there been who had led the Union Army? Well, there were four in very short order within within about a year. You know, Lincoln Lincoln, uh, didn't waste any time. If if he felt that a a general had failed him, he, uh, he was very quick on the trigger. Hmm. And uh, he was getting incredibly frustrated with with the, with the commanding generals, and 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 rightly so in so many cases. Um, but I think it had a lot. To, I think one of the reasons that Meade probably was successful was because Lincoln played a fairly active role in terms of you know telling Meade what he expected of him um, at this point in time. He didn't leave a lot of things open. <laughs> Basically, look, you know, Lee's in Pennsylvania. You got to get him out of here. Yeah. And uh, and so I think I think. Some of that had to do a little bit with 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 Lincoln change, and and when I talk about Lincoln, and uh, I talk about a transformational leader, and 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 I, I probably want to focus on him a little bit somewhere in this conversation, but but that's uh, I think that has a has a role to play in it as well. Is 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 the commander in chief um, had a lot to do with Meade's success, I believe. Hmm. Well, I think the two pieces of context that bring it to me to modern day is. So Meade did a brilliant job. You've talked about his empowerment, his communication. And what I, I'm pretty, tell me if I'm wrong on this, but one thing he didn't do is he didn't dramatically shake things up in terms of leadership. I mean, he was literally coming into an organization, the Union Army, that had had four generals before him. Hmm. One of them had been in and out and then back in, but Clellan, but they had all basically been fired or resigned before they got fired. So you think about most leaders who come into an organization where they've had a lot of turnover, one of the things they do is they start changing everything. But Meade really didn't do that. Right. Well, that, you're right about that. And, and one of the things yeah, about that that's fascinating when you talk about the change in leadership and having trust and so on, Meade's chief of staff was a man named Dan Butterfield, Daniel Butterfield. And Butterfield was actually a strong ally of, of his predecessor, Joseph Hooker. And Meade and Butterfield really didn't get along very well. And uh, there were times when uh, a lot of people suspected that Butterfield was undermining um, Meade from time to time. And so when you have a change in leadership, you deal with that as well. And I think that's why it was so important for Meade to find people that he could trust, because there were some people that he didn't know. And, and you know, as you know, during the battle, there were even some commanders that the wheels came off uh, during the battle itself. Um, I'm thinking of Dan Sickles, for instance. Uh, you know, 
very interesting character. I don't, we, we could talk about him for the next 90 minutes, but, but, uh, but he kind of, uh, you know, went against Meade's orders during the battle, and that was a big fiasco. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. The Impact Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Cartavera. Cartavera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, resources, events, and a community to help you grow. At Cartavera, we believe that you can't grow a business bigger than you, that your company is limited by your growth. We blend personal growth with leadership, team, and business growth to give you a single place to grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. You can find out more at cartavera.com. Welcome back. Well, Jack, one thing I want to make sure we cover, and as you said, we could spend so much on this. So I'm, I'm jumping about, you, you opened by talking about courage. And you said you've looked a lot at the why, and I think there's so much that we miss in our organizations today about really having a clear why that creates what Craig and I call followership, building followership based on trust. And I particularly actually want to talk the, the example coming to mind is on the Confederate side, because years ago I read something where a modern-day general had stood on, look where Pickett's charge happened on the third day, and said, there's not a man in today's army that would have followed that order. Hmm. Wow. Because it was, it, and it almost succeeded. It almost, I mean, there's, there were glimpses of success. So speak to the why and what, and I, I guess, if it is just about the cause, speak to that, but what are some of the whys that drove these men to follow these leaders in incredible circumstances? Yeah, I think there are a number of things you can unpack with that. And I, I think there, it, it goes beyond the, the cause itself. Um, you know, people talk about the Southern cause and how these soldiers were so devoted and so on. But I think there are a couple of things. And, and, it, and I really talk about, you know, if someone believes in their leader, they're willing to go to war for them. and so when you talk about Robert E. Lee, you know, I mean, they believed in him and, and, and he believed in them. And uh, in fact, he, he blamed himself after Pickett's charge and said, I thought we were invincible. You know, that's why he gave the order to, to do this charge across that open field. Mm -hmm. um, so I think people, if they believe in their leader, you know, Confederate soldiers were known to say things like, I would charge the gates of hell for that old man. You know, and those types of quotes are out there talking about Robert E. Lee. So they believed in him. But the other thing that's really important, and I, and I know so many military people uh, that, that tell me this all the time, that, that when you're in battle, you know, you're in battle with the person on the right of you and the person on the left of you. And the last thing you want to do is let them down. Yeah. And you don't want them to let you down. You depend on them, but they're depending on you. Okay, and you're in this thing together. And the last thing you want is to be the person who lets someone else down. And, and I do talk a lot about that because I think, as you know, in, in business, if we can bring some of that attitude with us, that there is a, this, this greater thing going on than just us as individuals. Um, and we're in this together. I find that that is really one of the things that, that serves as part of the explanation as to why these soldiers did what they did. I mean, there are a number of examples. There are some examples on the union side where you say, well, you know, what are these guys thinking? Why did they follow that order? They knew they were sacrificing themselves, but they understood so, why. So if you look at that as, as a modern context of, you know, there are a lot of organizations that try to build family. And so is the family bond going to be the same thing as like the platoon bond? Is that, is that going to be a similar thing where you really don't want to let down your family versus, you know, the person you're, you're fighting a live war with. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think that starts with leadership uh, a lot of the time, Craig. I think that, you know, it, it starts there, that if, if you are able to put yourself out in front, if you're the type of leader that leads from the front, mm -hmm. that you're not asking anybody else to do what you're not doing yourself, right. you know, and, and whether that's in a family or whatever that might be, or, or, or within a business, you know, if you're a leader of a group of people and you're asking them to do something, you know, they need to understand that, that, that you're willing to do it yourself. I mean, a, a good business example. I know in, 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 my, in my line of work, in my, in my previous world, you know, there were so many times that, you know, we'd be racing against deadlines and we'd be working late hours and sometimes even pull overnighters to get work done for, 
a presentation or a campaign or whatever that might be. Well, I couldn't just say, hey, guys, have at it. Have a fun time tonight. I'll, I'll order a pizza for you guys, and I'll be home, uh, you know, watching TV if you need me for anything, you know. And uh, so I, I think that's that analogy is such. I, I think you just need to, to think of that at, sometimes that, you know, you've got to be the one that during a time of crisis or a time of, you know, of urgency, that you're the one that has the clarity of mind and focus to say, hey, we're going to do this and so on. And I think that's why, you know, during Pickett's charge, um, the officers were right there. And, and uh, sadly, I mean, one of the tragic things about Pickett's charge is so many of the, of the generals were killed during Pickett's charge. Uh, wow. And uh, so... Well, I guess going 100 years before that, you know, we, we must stand together or surely we will, we, we must hang together or surely we will hang separately. Yeah. Um, exactly. You know, talking about the founding so, principles of our, founding principles, yeah. our country. So Jack, um, I, I really resonate with this idea. In fact, what popped in my head was there's a book, um, a book, the title resonates with me. It's called Who's Got Your Back? And the book's all about building relationships. That's what it's about. And I think so many people in their teams today are really desperate to feel like they've got people around them who have their back. Mm. And, you know, I think it's easy for people to dismiss this conversation as this is battlefield leadership. And I don't, I don't see that at all. And I know you don't because these are, in, these are endearing principles that cross lines. In fact, I would argue it's a greater test to have people follow you because they want to in battle, not because they have to. Yeah. The, the level of trust that it comes from that. So I would like you to speak to around that. The word you haven't used yet relates to Robert E. Lee. And, and one other little piece that's hitting me. Right now in this country, there's a lot going on around Robert E. Lee. Um, his statues are coming down. And I think it's a complex topic. And it's easy um, for Lee to be judged for the cause he fought for. but he was a leader on both sides that very few people had this label, which is beloved. Hmm. Robert E. Lee was beloved as a leader. What made him beloved and how does that translate into modern day leadership? Well, I think a couple of things about Robert E. Lee. And then one thing that a lot of people don't know or they forget about is when the war began, Robert E. Lee was offered command of the union army by Abraham Lincoln. So but he chose not to take command of the Union Army, and, and his reason was that he couldn't fight against his home state of, of Virginia, um, for the most part. Um, you know, Lee, I say there, there are two things that a great leader has that, that, that make people follow them or, 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 or hold them in high regard, and that's honesty and empathy. And, and Lee tended to show that. Um, you know, whenever he would um, take time to ride around with his troops and so on, you know, again, one of those things that you read about that they said that, you know, seeing him ride through the, the you know, the various areas with the troops, that it was like they saw the, an angel of the Lord passing through. I mean, they just, they just, they just held him in such awe. Um, wow. in, in fact, a, a sort of a funny little sidebar story. I don't know if you've seen the movie Gettysburg. Um, well, you say, of course. Um, well, Craig, I suggest you, you see it if you haven't, but there's a scene in that movie, and, and, and Jeff, you, you probably remember this, where, where Robert E. Lee comes out of the woods, and all of a sudden this big crowd of Confederate soldiers surround him, and they're chanting, Lee, 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 and, and, and they're waving their hats and, and the flag and all this stuff, and they, they surround him, and this is just like this big, huge moment in this movie. Well, what's, what's interesting is that really wasn't scripted in the movie. Um, what happened was they were on a break while shooting this, this film. And, and when, you know, Robert E. Lee came out of the woods, all these actors who were, re who were actually reenactors, you know, went, went crazy. And they just, in this moment, they just all, <laughs> and they all surrounded and huddled around Robert E. Lee. And the, and so the director was like, that's going in the movie. Wow. You know? Good thing so they had the camera on. <laughs> imagine, you know, just, the effect that this guy has on, on the charisma or wherever it was that Robert E. Lee had, um, he just had a way of, of commanding a presence. And, and the troops protected him. You know, there were times during the, the, the war when Lee kind of moved too close to the front. And uh, 
there was one regiment that was known for for shouting, you know, Lee to the rear, Lee to the rear. They were trying to get him to go back and, and you know, don't don't put yourself at risk. So you can and we can talk about Lee's politics and, and the current situation a lot. But 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 at that point in time, Lee was kind of this uh, this legendary figure at that point in time. Um, so I don't know how much I've answered your question, Jeff, about the, the monuments and that sort of thing. I, I get. Well, it wasn't about that. It was more about what, what was, it wasn't about the monuments. It was more about the traits of Lee. And I heard two, I heard honesty, I heard empathy. Hmm. And a third one that I, I want to throw out there from, from my learning is that Lee deeply believed in his men. Yeah. And he believed that they could do anything. Uh, and sometimes to a fault, but I don't think he was ever a man that saw what his troops couldn't do. Mm. But they felt better about who they were as an, as a group because of the way he treated them. It also sounds like there's a little bit of what Tom Peters calls management by walking around, that that you're actually in amongst the other people, and that shows that you actually care. That you know, it's not just, you know, I'm up here in the ivory tower and you're, you're down there. I'm with you. That's right. And, and, you know, Lee, you know, he, he had the empathy and so on, but he was also um, just a really solid um, commander. He had, to your point, he had such confidence in his troops. And I think when you're someone out there in business or you're on a battlefield and you know that you're, you have the full support and confidence, you know, of your leader, you can do some amazing things. You know, um, when you have that, I, I've heard some people describe it as when you're in the, in the midst of a battle and you, and you just have an enormous amount of confidence, this sort of narcosis kind of takes over. You don't even think about your own mortality at that point. You're just, you're, you're doing your job and, 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 and you're doing the best you can um, and, you're, and you're completely motivated. And I think one of the things that, and I haven't said this word yet, I don't believe, but one of the things that probably has, has been kind of the undercurrent theme of everything that I talk about um, is that people just want to be inspired, you know, in business, in war, in politics, in anything that we talk about, people want to be inspired. And Lee just had a way of inspiring people um, through his, his actions. Through his presence, I mean, you talk about battlefield presence, and 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 there are some commanders, uh, certainly at Gettysburg, who had that. Um, you know, Meade, Meade really didn't have much of a presence. I mean, he was kind of bookish and professor-like, and and didn't have the kind of charisma that a lot of others had. But but he was a competent general. Um, Lee had that presence. Um, Winfield Scott Hancock had had a massive presence on a battlefield <laughs> for the Union Army. Well, let's, um, I want to speak about, I think there's another topic under this, but I'm going to start with the leader. This is my, this is my favorite, what I'm going to ask you about now. And you probably know who it's going to be. This is my favorite leader from the Civil War. Um, And many call the hero of Gettysburg, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, Uh, the college professor, Uh, And I I always like to talk about him because he was by no means a warrior in the traditional sense. And too often people think of battlefield leadership. This is how warriors do it. So that doesn't apply to business. So talk a little bit about Chamberlain, his leadership and his nature. Uh, Because I know I'm trying to remember the book with the saying about him. The book was the same title, the heart of a lion and the soul of a woman. Yeah. One of the other generals referred to him that way. Yes. So speak about the, uh, Chamberlain as a leader and what we can learn from Chamberlain to bring into modern day leadership. Well, Chamberlain, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, he has become this, this really strong figure from the Battle of Gettysburg and the entire Civil War. Chamberlain was, some people are just born to be leaders, you know, and, and Chamberlain showed that. He was, he was a professor, really well thought of at that point, um, volunteered to, to be in the army. After the war, um, he became a four-term governor of, of the state of Maine, um, president of Bowdoin College. Um, the thing that was great about Chamberlain was he was 
also a very good writer and a very good speaker. And he actually was able to sort of create the narrative and, 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 and control the narrative of what happened at Gettysburg. And, and so that's why we have him being such a focal point in some of these things that we, we see. The thing about Chamberlain, and, and I, I like to tell a story about Chamberlain when he was a very young boy, and I think it, it, it actually can speak volumes in terms of the way that Chamberlain approached um, leadership um, in the military as well. And, and I don't know, Jeff, if you've heard this story or not, but when Chamberlain was a young boy, he was uh, plowing a field. He, was, he grew up on a farm in Maine. And as he's plowing this field, he kept coming across these boulders. And so he got frustrated and he went to his father and he said, look, how am I going to do this? How am I going to plow this field with all these boulders? And his father walked up to him and he said, do it. He said, that's how. Just do it. And Chamberlain went back and he found a way of getting it done. Now, I'm pretty sure that some brand manager from Nike, you know, studied Chamberlain along the way. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I digress from the story. But, but what was fascinating about this was Chamberlain found a way of plowing this field. And when he became a professor at Bowdoin College, he actually wrote a curriculum around this. And the name of the class was Do It. <laughs> called it the solution to a thousand problems. Wow. And... You know, heroically, um, Chamberlain won the Congressional Medal of Honor. He was one of 64 Congressional Medal of Honor winners at Gettysburg. And his moment, and he made sure that people knew that they would re remember him for this moment at Gettysburg. Um, Craig, for your benefit, I'll give you a very quick description of what happened if you're not familiar with the story. But Chamberlain <clears throat> was part of a, a brigade that was sent to this area on the battlefield. It was actually kind of the left flank of the Union line called Little Round Top. And um, Chamberlain, his, his uh, regiment, the 20th Maine, actually was kind of the anchor of this line. He was the far left regiment, meaning he was the flank of the army. So he was given very strict orders to not withdraw and not retreat. They said, you must hold to the last. You know, whatever you do, because if the Confederates had swept around the Union line, they maybe could have taken them from behind and maybe, maybe won the battle right there. Yeah. So Chamberlain was in this position. and, and he was only in position about 10 minutes before the Confederates attacked. And uh, it was a really intense fight that took place for, a, for, for quite a while. Um, they speak of, you know, five times the Confederates pushed Chamberlain and his men back from their position, and five times they fought their way back again. Mm -hmm. um, Chamberlain, the, 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 the fighting was so desperate and deadly that Chamberlain said that there were more dead and wounded of the enemy around him than his own men at, at one point in the battle. And so while they're fighting, at, at one point, they began to run out of ammunition. Hmm. And some of them had none at all, and, and others were very low on ammunition. So, you know, his commanders are asking him, you know, what do we do? I mean, we've got to, you know, he, Chamberlain saw two choices that, that were given to him. One was, you know, he could retreat, but he knew that if he retreated, um, it would be a disaster for the Union Army. The other thing was to stay and fight. Well, to stay and fight with that ammunition is, is suicide. So Chamberlain, um, being somewhat creative, came up with a third option. <laughs> he ordered his men to fix bayonets. Yeah, there and you go. These, these men that at that time, I, I believe by then they probably had about less than 300 men left. Um, they were worn out too. They were worn out. Um, they'd lost half their strength. Um, so they fixed bayonets. He gave the order. They charged down the hill at the Confederates, taking them completely by surprise. They wound up capturing 400 Confederates in the charge um, and little round top held. And so this is an episode that people will always think of Joshua Chamberlain for. Um, I, if, if you'll um, indulge me, Jeff, I have another um, story about Chamberlain that, that actually is probably the thing that tells me the most about Joshua Chamberlain. When we talk about empathy and honesty and all of those things. Is this um, the surrender? Yes. Um, please do. This is, we'll, we'll, yeah, please do. We'll finish with that. This is, yeah, please. Well, it, Chamberlain had advanced up the ranks and he became actually a general. Um, he, was a, he was a colonel at Gettysburg. And by the end of the war, he was a general. And, and Ulysses Grant had thought so highly of Joshua Chamberlain that um, at Appomattox, 
when the Confederates and were finally surrendering um, to, to Grant, the unconditional surrender, um, he put Chamberlain in charge of the Confederate surrender. So the circumstances were such, I mean, you have to understand the fighting just before the end was probably some of the most brutal fighting during the Civil War. I mean, both sides were not taking prisoners anymore. The Confederates were hanging on, um, trying to, to, with their last breath, trying to keep the war going, and the Union was trying to end it then and there. This was savage fighting at the end, as brutal as it gets. And so the idea behind this unconditional surrender was the Confederates were ordered to come to, to Appomattox and lay down their, their arms and their battle flags and so on. And to do so, they had to march up this road to get to the courthouse. Well, Chamberlain ordered all the Union troops to stand along both sides of the road and stand in march salute as these Confederate troops came up this road. So you can imagine, you know, civil wars just don't end this way. <laughs> you know, and, and these troops are, are coming up this road and, and they see these Union troops standing in salute for them. And they wow. returned the salute. And the message was clear that, you know, we're all in this together now. You know, wow. war is over. Now we've got to come together. And, and it just says so much about Joshua Chamberlain's character, I believe. He was looking at the next step. We have to, we have to consolidate. We have to heal. That's wow. exactly right. Wow. So, I mean, that, that may be my favorite story of Joshua Chamberlain, <laughs> even more so than the story of Little Roundtop. There are, there are a lot of good stories about, about him. Well, I, and, and I know this is very brief. I also know I, when you said that, I figured surrender. The other one is I, I really love his leadership at Petersburg. When he's leading the charge as a general, he's mm -hmm. leading the charge and gets shot through the hip ruined through both his hips and ended up, interestingly enough, he died of that like 80, 60 years later. He actually died of that, but he refused to fall and leaned on his sword because he was afraid that if he fell, his men would stop. And he stayed standing until they all passed him and the battle was moving forward. And only then did, I mean, that was a potentially mortal wound. He was expected to die from it, but he, that, to me, that speaks of mission, and I always come back with Chamberlain, I, and I will close it up with this, and I can <clears throat> do this for hours, that I said the phrase earlier, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, called by another general, as having the heart of a lion and the soul of a woman, which is not who we think of in battlefield leadership. And what it reminds me is that leadership is about empathy, and leadership is about, there is a vulnerability in leadership that Craig and I talk about all the time, that existed even during the Civil War in the most brutal, certainly the most brutal in terms of that type of combat in history. Mm. And yet the lead, so much of the leadership was not autocratic, was not authoritarian. Yes, orders were given, but there was a, a trust that was built with the people who followed them. So many great examples of building followership through honesty and empathy even in the midst of battle. Right. So, Jack, thank you so much. I, I hope you could tell how excited I was during this conversation. <laughs> I, I, I definitely learned a lot. I, I have not been as much of a student of yeah. history of, of that point in time, but uh, very interesting. Thank you for yeah, sharing. Go watch Gettysburg. Uh, I will. Go watch Gettysburg. <laughs> it's, it's a little over three Probably hours. Probably tonight. Break, so, uh, <laughs> it's about three hours, yeah, but it's – it's a great job of storytelling. It's based on the book Killer Angels, which is actually the first book I ever read about the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And that's what hooked me was Killer Angels. Mm. And it's then funny, I was but that's, a lot of people say that. Yeah, no, it's that kind of book. So, Jack, so, so much amazing stuff. Uh, tell us about, just give us a little more background on you in terms of how do people find you. Uh, you mentioned a book. Make sure you mention the title. We'll put all that in the show notes. But give us a little bit about how people can get in touch with you. And if there's anything in particular you want to promote, share that. Well, well, thanks. Yeah, well, they can go to my website. It's battlereadyleadership.com. Hmm. Um, the book that I've written um, is called Battle Ready Leadership Handbook, amazingly. And, um, and it's available on Amazon. Um, and the book was really written to be kind of a, a companion piece or, or something that could go along with um, the sessions that I do for businesses. Um, I do both um, 
I'll do Zoom, you know, at this point, uh, Zoom leadership um, conferences with, with businesses. Um, typically, those run three episodes, um, and, and they cover everything from, from beginning to end, both about the battle, but also, more importantly, about top-end leadership all the way through to people who step up in the time of, of crisis and that sort of thing. So, so I do that, and, and I think ultimately one of the things that I do, which is my favorite part of my business, is um, some businesses um, like to go to Gettysburg for sort of a leadership summit, and we spend two or three days there. And these summits are customized. Um, we let people know, you know, or I find out, you know, what their needs are, what they're looking to do in terms of things they want to address, whether it's communication, whether it's, you know, different things that have to do with even, even sales and types of things like that, that we can tie into this summit to talk about how people can use some of these lessons um, to improve, you know, what, what the company is doing. So that's my favorite part of the business is being able to take people to Gettysburg and kind of, we can walk in the footsteps of some of these people and, and it allows people to say, what would I do in that situation? And I think it'd be extremely effective. So again, that word inspiration comes into it. And um, I've actually had people become kind of emotional during these, uh, these summits from time to time. Um, and it tends to be effective in terms of a, of a leadership training process. And they can find that all on your website, right, Jack? They can. Fantastic. So I always close with one question. And um, in the interest of time, I'm just going to give you one question. It's one of my favorites which is movies. Yeah. So what's the, the movie or the scene or the character that speaks to you about leadership? Well, I'm going to go with, um, you know, the, the movie Patton. Um, Patton to me is one of the more fascinating characters in history, not yeah. just from the military standpoint, but just the things that he believed in and, and, and just his character and, and, and everything else. So in the movie Patton, my favorite scene in that movie is, if, if you remember, there was a point where the, the Germans are leading this counterattack, the Battle of the Balls, right? It's midwinter, terrible weather. Um, fighting is really intense at this point. Things are bogged down for the American army and the British, and the Germans are kind of taking the initiative. And uh, there's one point where all the commanders come together, some of the British and some of the Americans all come together in this room, and they're talking about the situation during the Battle of the Balls, and they say, well, Right now, the 101st Airborne is pinned down in Bastogne, and, and we need to relieve them somehow. And, and Ike wants to know if anyone can help relieve them, you know. And so they go around the room. One British general says, well, I can speak for General Montgomery. There's no way. I mean, we're engaged. We're involved. We can, there's no way we could get there. We're far away. And another one kind of hem-haws a little bit. And they, say, well, and they look at Pat, and they say, well, what about you, George? And he says, well, I'll attack with three divisions in 48 hours, you know, and, 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 and they're all stunned because they say, George, you know, you're, you're engaged right now. You know, he was at that time, they were already in a major battle. And uh, so he says, you know, that um, they, they say, basically, we didn't know your men loved you so much that, uh, you know, they would do this. And, and he said, they don't. He said, but I trained them and they, and, and they know what to do. And uh, so this, this, this scene continues and you see battle scenes and terrible, desperate fighting and so on. What comes to the end of this, this massive scene and they're showing these troops, you know, kind of walking along in the snow and some of them have blankets wrapped around their shoes because it's freezing and, and the tremendous hardship. And these guys are marching in the snow and, and they show Patton standing on the side of the road. And, and you hear his voice, and he says, you know, this is where it all pays off, the training, the discipline. No other fighting unit in the world could, could, could pull themselves out of a major battle, march 100 miles with no hot food, no rest, go into, a, into an attack. God, God, I love these men, you know? And, and uh, it just, to me, it speaks so much. We talked about having confidence in your troops, you know? And I just wonder, we talked about that a little bit at Gettysburg. And, and to me, that's, if you're one of these soldiers, which, by the way, my uncle was one of these soldiers um, in World War II, these soldiers knowing that, that their commander is so confident in them that they can pull themselves out of a battle, march, and go into a major attack to relieve, you know, these, these, this 101st Airborne and save the day. Um, I think it maybe gave them a little bit of a, of a quicker step as they were marching through the snow. And Bastogne. Wow. Such a, such a awesome good, one. good scene. Yeah. 
So thank yeah, thank you so much. I love what you've shared with everybody and, and weaving in the stories of Gettysburg in particular. My hope is that people will see Gettysburg and, and all these times as just great examples of leadership that they can bring into today's time. That's my hope for this. And so thank you so much for bringing your passion and your wisdom, Jack. Thank you, guys. Enjoy it. Thanks for being here. Thank you. If you like this podcast, you'll love the Cartavera Tribe. The Cartavera Tribe is a community of growth-committed leaders who want to connect, engage, and grow themselves, their people, and their businesses. Cartavera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, assessments, and events to challenge you and help you grow. And the Cartavera Tribe is a membership like none other. You'll get live access to Craig and Jeff where you can ask questions, as well as masterminds where you can get answers from other leaders who've already solved your greatest challenges. You'll have access to additional interviews and a variety of courses, tools, and resources to help you achieve your biggest goals. We have monthly game days where we have challenges and competitive games to help you grow your leadership capabilities. And you'll get a personal growth Sherpa who will guide you to help you reach your growth goals. To find out more, go to cartavera.com. That's C-A-R-D-I-V-E-R-A.com. See you on the inside. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. out.